Good morning and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We welcome you to yet another webinar. It's an honor to have you here with us today. My name is Modupa Isijola. I'll be anchoring the webinar for today. But um, I just want to appreciate you all for always honoring our invitation. Thank you so much. Before I go on, I'll call my colleague, Lynette Okelo from... Okay, sorry. Um, I'll call on Ishaya, my colleague from Nigeria, to take us in the opening prayer. Thank you so much. Thank you, Modupe, and uh, thank you everyone here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin this uh, webinar today. Uh, Father, we come to you with our hearts full of gratitude for gathering us here at this webinar. We ask that uh, as we begin, your spirit will take the lead that we will enjoy the leadership of your spirit from start to finish. I pray, Lord, for all that will be joining participants, that you'll give us hearing ears, and you'll give us hearts that will yield to do your will. I pray for our lead uh, speaker, Tim, that, Father, you will grace him and cause him to speak with simplicity, in such a way that uh, we will hear and understand. Please empower him with power from on high. And I just pray that uh, you'll guide every aspect of this webinar, help us with the technical challenges um, when there will be and uh, every other thing. Lord, we just trust you. So lead us as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Ishaya. Right now, I will call on the Vice President for Africa Region, Mr. Festus Oluwashion. Hello, everyone. Good to see you here. My name is Festus Oluwashion, and I serve as the Vice President of Adelie Bread Ministries for the Africa Region. On behalf of the ministry, and my colleagues, I welcome you very warmly to today's uh, webinar teaching. This is the sixth in the session of our webinar series, which we started in September 2020 as part of our response to, to the many problems and challenges that the world is facing today, amongst which is the COVID-19 pandemic. As a ministry that is committed to helping to make the life-changing wisdom of the Bible, understandable and accessible to all, it is our firm belief that the Word of God not only has the answers, but also the solutions to all of life's problems and challenges. And so we take it as part of our responsibilities to keep reminding ourselves and our numerous members and readers to continue looking up to God and His Word even in these depressing times, because therein lies all that pertains unto life and godliness. In our previous editions, we have considered topics like embracing your life, courage to get through life, the ministry of encouragement, handling disappointment with people, healing from the distress of COVID-19, hope in challenging times, and strategies for success looking at the case study of Nehemiah, a man with a vision. If you missed any of our past editions, I'd like to encourage you that um, we have a section on our website where you can go and watch or listen to them. And that website is www.odb.org. 
You can also search for us on YouTube at Our Daily Bread Africa or watch them or search for them on our podcast page, which is um, Our Daily Bread Africa podcast. You can search for that on Anchor, on Specify, or on Google Podcast. And so for today's topic, we'll be looking at the hand of God. In today's world, there is so much pain and suffering, and people often ask the question, is God in control? If he is, why does he allow so many bad things to happen in the world? Or if indeed he is good, as they say, why does he allow suffering to happen, even to the redeemed Bible-believing, spirit-filled children of his? And also people ask, when will all these sufferings come to an end? Um, I cannot pretend that I have the answers to these questions, but one thing I do know personally, and which I'm convinced of, is uh, what is recorded in the book of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says that, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. In any event, I'm sure that today our guest speaker, Tim Gustafson, will be trying to help us make a sense of all of these questions and many more as he shares his thoughts with us on how he's learning to see God in every situation and subject, including family, football, and DNA tests. Uh, Tim speaks to us today from Grand Rapids. Thank you very much, Tim, for, for joining us. And I also want to use this opportunity to welcome Mengpo, a colleague from Malaysia. Meng, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, Tim is a brother and a friend to us in the Africa region. He writes for Adelie Bread Ministries, and he also writes for, uh, 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 he edits Adelie Journal, a daily journey, and also serves as an editor for the Discovery Series. These are some of the publications that we have in a range of materials in the ministry. Tim, as an adopted son of missionaries to Ghana, has an unusual perspective on life in the West. And uh, Tim and his wife, Lisa, are the parents of one daughter and seven sons. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, his life verse is found in Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6, uh, which says, Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families, and he sets prisoners free and gives them joy. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, please help me welcome Tim Gustafson as he speaks to us today on the hand of God. And may you all be blessed as you listen in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much, Festus. I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm very, very happy to be here. I, I, I truly mean that. It's, it's an honor and a privilege to speak to you. I want to share a little bit of my personal story uh, just as I start. And it will, it will tie into what I have to speak about later. Um, so I think you will see. Uh, how, uh, how DNA tests might have a little bit to do with what we have to say today about uh, uh, our union with Christ, which is what I ultimately want to speak about. Uh, as I do my editorial work, um, I often listen to music through the headphones of my laptop in order to black out the distractions. I'm, I'm usually in a cubicle, other people working, there might be construction going on. So I like music very much, so... I choose the music carefully in order to provide a calming background and not something that I'm going to be inclined to get pulled into to where I'm only listening to the music instead of accomplishing the task at hand. Then I don't get anything done. Now I'm, I'm too tight-fisted to pay for premium service. So as I'm listening to this music online, I'm, subject, I'm subjected to these online advertisements that will intrude they come at uh, very inopportune moments. Uh, I shouldn't complain. After all, I'm, I'm not paying for the music. But on, uh, on one particular day, when yet another online commercial had rudely shattered my musical rever reverie and, and, and took my creativity with it, 
Well, I was at first annoyed, but then I was intrigued. I'm not in buying the product, but I was intrigued in what the product was. This exuberant ad man was talking about a DNA test kit. Now, this interests me for reasons I'll soon explain. He declared with excessive confidence, the problem is you don't know who you are or where you're from. Well, if, if that's our problem, let's just figure out who we are and where we're from and we'll all be good. If only it were that simple. The problem, though, I fear, is that the answer to where we are from has little or no bearing on who we are. But I need to explain my interest in DNA kits. Where are you from is a very useful conversation starter, but it presents me with a problem when, whenever I hear it. Do I give a simple and woefully inadequate response in order to avoid what might become a series, a series of, of curious questions? Or do I take the time to begin to explain where I came from? Because the technically accurate answer is only a tiny splinter of my story. I was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is quite a coincidence. I was born to a woman I never knew. I resided in Grand Rapids for exactly two days. By 20 days of age, I had been adopted by a childless missionary couple on the other side of the state. I traveled with them across the Eastern and Southern United States for the next year. And by 13 months of age, I was living in Ghana. In my first nine years of schooling, I would attend eight schools, not including a semester at sea that comprised first grade. That's uh, primary one, I believe you may call it. We had taken passage across the Atlantic on a freighter that summer on the African Lightning. This was my parents' fourth trip back to Ghana. And I have to admit that semester was somewhat abbreviated. Little did I know that was not my first time to cross the Atlantic Ocean on a ship. Over the course of my life, I have resided in eight states and four countries on three continents, and I got my start in a fourth continent. I didn't know this until January of last year, just before COVID hit. Now, we human beings tend to be quite resilient, and I adapted very quickly to whatever locale I happened to be residing in. Yet, at some level, it seems like I'm always the foreign guy. Sociologists have a label for people like me. Parents from one culture were raised in another culture. We're not quite belonging to either one. We're third culture kids. It's not a lament it's, or a complaint, it's, it's, it's pretty cool, but it is complicated. And you can see why I can't explain that quite readily. Over the decades, my wonderful parents passed away. My wife had long heard me muse out loud about my birth mother. I wondered who she was, where she was, why did she have to give me up? It's the rare woman who wants to give up her baby. One day, my wife asked me if I would take a DNA test to try to connect some of the dots. I thought, sure, why not? I'm not hiding. It took over two years. One day, we had an interesting message from a probable first cousin match, is how it was phrased on the website. The message was in German. Who are you and how can we be related? There are no Americans in the family. Could this be a mistake? It was not a mistake. And within two hours, we had learned the story from two still living Swiss aunties of mine. Of course, I had known nothing about these aunties until that moment. My American mother, their long ago friend, 
I've been spending a year in Europe recovering from tuberculosis. She had fallen in love with their brother, a jazz musician. To make a long story short, I have seven siblings in Switzerland, including a brother who is older by 64 days. You can figure out how that happened and it has everything to do with why I'm adopted. When my birth mom finally accepted the cold reality that her Swiss boyfriend was not going to marry her, she said a tearful goodbye to my aunties. Then she went to catch a ship back to the USA. At the time, she was six months pregnant. That was the first time I had crossed the Atlantic on a ship. To keep me a secret and to give the child she loved a chance in life, she left her home in Detroit to give birth to me. That's about a two and a half hour drive from Grand Rapids. I have no real roots in Grand Rapids, but that is where I was born. So if you were in my shoes, how would you answer the question, where are you from? I'm not merely the foreign guy in whatever neighborhood I happen to be in. I'm the foreign guy in my own family. But back to that online advert that caught my interest. The exuberant speaker was now talking in earnest about the vital importance of ancestry. He said, and if you don't know your great grandparents, there's a good chance your great grandkids won't know you either. He said this as though our lives are meaningless unless we have children or we are known. Well, that's a lie. We don't have to be known in order to have value. He acted as though to be unknown is the worst fate of all. That is not the worst fate of all. First of all, God had words of everlasting comfort for those who could not have children, yet chose to follow him. Through the prophet Isaiah, God promised to those, this is Isaiah 56, verses 4 and 5, to those who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me, I will give them within the walls of my house, a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. So God promises an everlasting name. More than that, we are known, each and every one of us. The poet David had a solid grasp on the basis of our significance. He wrote a song that frames the answer to the question, who knows us, as effectively as anything ever written. The passage holds profound meaning for me especially, but its elegant truth applies to each of us equally. David said, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. That's verses 13 to 16 of Psalm 139. Sure, it would be great if our descendants knew all about us. That isn't likely. Neither is it nearly as crucial as that DNA guy would have us believe. It's far more important to know who knows us, to know the nature of our union with the very one who knows us, and how that union leads to our unity with each other. There's much talk in our world these days about unity and diversity. The discussion is needed. These are excellent things to strive for. I would love to see a world in which we are truly unified amid all the immense diversity God has created among us. 
I pray for that day, and it will come, thanks to our Lord Jesus. In the meantime, there seems to be no shortage of things to divide us, to distract us from our proper focus, to keep us separated. These things ought not to be, but what do we do about it? And what right do I have to tell you anything? I don't. But together, we can look at what Jesus has to teach us about these things. My prayer is that I can help build a small part of the bridge that we must always be building from one continent to the next, from one nation to the next, from one culture to the next, one tribe to the next, one village to the next, from one human being to the next. We must never forget that each individual human being, even our enemies, are made in the very image of God. That is how we can form a true bond of unity with each other and with others. It is one relationship at a time. And our most fundamental relationship, the one upon which every other relationship must be built if it is to last, is our union with Christ. So what does union with Christ look like in practical terms? What, what if we were to sit with the disciples in the upper room the night before Jesus was crucified? We would expect Jesus to be too preoccupied to be concerned about anyone else. He knew what was about to happen. He had created the world and given us free will, and now we, his creatures, were about to reject him. With the exception of John, all of the disciples would abandon him that very night. And within hours, he would be nailed to a cross. And yet, Jesus displayed a relentless focus on others throughout his ordeal. The entire scene begins with Jesus and the disciples. They're eating the Passover meal. This is in John 13, starting with verse 2. This is the Last Supper. Despite the looming crisis, Jesus is in teaching mode, as always. His imminent death does nothing to slow that. He begins by showing the disciples what servant leadership looks like. He performs the lowliest task available. He washes their feet, including, and this is important, including Judas's. Then he tells them, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. That's in verse 15 of chapter 13. Once Jesus has dismissed Judas, he says, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. This is verses 31 and 32 of chapter 13. The connection between father and son is intimate. And in the very next chapter, in the same upper room discourse, Jesus tells Philip, Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. That's verse 9 of chapter 14. Then he emphasizes their unity by saying, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And then Jesus says something I believe has been badly misunderstood, even abused sometimes. He said this, verses 12 to 14 of chapter 14. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works, because I am going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it, so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is an interesting teaching on prayer, and absolutely vital. My European cousin, who had discovered me, has grown quite close to me. He contacts me nearly every single day. This is despite the fact that he is not a Christian. But we openly talk about our differences. One day we were discussing prayer, and I made the assumption that he doesn't pray. 
He said, oh, I do pray. He prays to the cosmos. He doesn't believe he can speak to a God that possesses personality. He prays to express gratitude to the universe, to be one with everything. Well, he and I strongly disagree on that. Others, though, many of them who are Christians, take an approach that, that feels traditionally Christian. And they'll say, I pray because I have needs. I do too. Or they say they thank God for things. Perhaps they pray on behalf of other people who quite naturally need things. We all need certain things. But the line between needing something and wanting something is too easily blurred. Jesus was praying that we would bring glory to the Father with what we do, including our prayer life. We gain some insight into prayer by observing the life of Jesus. First of all, Jesus prayed directly to his Father in heaven, and he taught his disciples to do the same when he gave them the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus' teaching here in this passage sounds like we can ask for anything we want and we will receive it. That is a superficial understanding of what is going on here. There's a far greater point Jesus is making. He wants us to be unified with him, which also means unity with his Father. And such a unity compels our obedience to him. He said, if you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them, and reveal myself to each of them. This teaching couldn't be more plain. Yet Jesus also said this about prayer. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. That's chapter 15 and verse 7. What does that mean exactly? I have to be honest, a distressing amount of my prayer time is about making my life less painful, more comfortable. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus is getting at here if we just look at the immediate context. Because in verse 20, Jesus told his disciples, since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. Well, can't the disciples just pray to escape that persecution? Apparently not. Jesus even told his disciples they would be killed for their faith in him. He also said, here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. That's chapter 16, verse 33. Again, in the upper room discourse. For the disciples, these are still future trials and sorrows. Wouldn't a simple, heartfelt prayer in Jesus' name get them out of those trials? Jesus never advises his disciples to pray such a prayer. Instead, he says this, but take heart because I have overcome the world. After they left the upper room that night, Jesus took his disciples to the Mount of Olives. There he prayed, Lord, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done not mine. I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus prayed that. That sentence is crucial. Jesus didn't want to endure the ordeal he knew was coming, but he resolutely said, 
I want your will to be done, not mine. He was unified with his father. And that is the key to prayer. Author and speaker Joe Pettigrew put it this way. Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will on God or for bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Did Jesus get what he wanted when he prayed? Yes, because ultimately... He wanted his father's will. As he told his disciples in John 14, 31, I will do what the father requires of me so that the world will know that I love the father. The connection between love and answered prayer is also critical. You didn't choose me, Jesus told the disciples. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. That's John 15 verses 16 and 17. Getting what we want is directly tied to aligning ourselves with what God wants. Jesus instructed us to obey his commands and to love each other as he has loved us. When we love him, and when we love each other, our priorities are transformed. We begin to pray for things that please God the Father. And what will please the Father? Living a life that imitates Christ is the way to do this, as we are led by his Holy Spirit. At Christ's arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter took a sword to the servant of the high priest. That was not the way Jesus was teaching us to go, and he promptly healed the man's severed ear. On his torturous walk to the site of his execution, Jesus spoke compassionately to the women who were weeping for him. At Golgotha, he forgave the very people who were killing him. From the cross, he forgave a repentant criminal who was crucified next to him. Also from the cross, he made sure his own mother would be cared for by his best friend. This natural focus on others was a logical continuation of Jesus' life. He had demonstrated great love through his miracles and teachings and through his example of servant leadership. So how do we live out that example of servant leadership? You can't find a greater giant of the faith than the Apostle Paul. And I do note, that he occasionally used sport as an opportunity to teach about spiritual matters. This brings joy to me and gives me more than sufficient license to do the same. You really don't have to know me for very long to recognize that I love sport. Because of my early days in Ghana and also because of my DNA, I'm a big fan of international football. And my favorite national team, apologies, is, is the Black Stars. Yes, even when they play the United States. It's hard to explain, but I know how I feel. So when World Cup time comes around, I'm keenly interested. 2018 was a bit disappointing for me. Um, neither Ghana nor the USA qualified. My son, by the way, actually went to Russia during the World Cup on a covert missions trip. And he bought me a Nigeria hat. I think he'd be happy about that. He said it was the closest he could find to a Ghana hat there. And he did attend a match. It was Senegal, Poland. And naturally, he cheered for Senegal. I raised him well. Oh, and Senegal won too, by the way. Football is the beautiful game, but it is the cruelest game too, as any true football fan knows. And I have to talk about one of the cruelest moments in World Cup history. This affects my, my adopted country of Ghana, or should I say the country that adopted me. Some of you already know the moment I'm going to talk about. The year was 2010, and Luis Suarez of Uruguay, the notorious biter, 
kept the ball out of goal in extra, an extra time with a flagrant handball. Ghana should have got the game winner with the ensuing penalty kick, but uh, fate was cruel. Asamoa Gian, bless him, squarely hit the bar with the resulted penalty. I do not envy him the pressure of that kick, which was almost brilliant. Uruguay, without the banished Suarez, I think his middle name should be Red Card, managed to win the match on penalty kicks. I do not need to mention that Ghana would have been the first African team to make the World Cup semifinals. And I must confess, I'm still bitter about that. I can't watch the replay. Much too painful. That is not the most notorious handball in World Cup history. The words hand of God carry a particular meaning to football fans. Some view it favorably. Others do not. The phrase, of course, refers to Diego Maradona's goal in the 1986 World Cup quarterfinal, which Argentina won 2-1 to one over England. A replays of the goal saw Maradona clearly punching the ball into the net with his left hand. The goal should have been disallowed, and in my opinion, Maradona should have been shown red. Just my opinion. After the match, Maradona said a would say of the goal, a little with the head of Maradona and a little with the hand of God. The English did not quite see it that way. Regardless of Maradona's attempt to be clever, his goal was not the hand of God. It was the hand of Diego Maradona. And in his defense, he did score an absolutely brilliant goal minutes later, completely within the rules. But all of this football talk is a digression from my primary point. In my days of working as a youth group leader at our church here in Michigan, we had our own misguided view of the hand of God. Well, it was a misguided view of the nature of God, but God's hand did indeed get misrepresented in the process. We were attempting to instill the spiritual disciplines in our students. To accomplish this, we gave them several things to do. This is not a bad thing. The spiritual disciplines are, in fact, things to do. One of the things we stressed was quiet time. We wanted the kids to read their Bibles, journal about what they had learned, and pray regularly. There's nothing wrong with that. Christian service was also highly encouraged. We tracked this by having the kids, or often their parents, fill out forms when they had done something that fit the category of service. Around here, that could mean shoveling the neighbor's walk in the winter. Snow can be a bit of a problem. Or cleaning the church after a social event. It's not unlike the Boy Scouts motto, do a good turn daily. Again, this is not a bad thing. In the process of trying to get good stuff done, though, we as leaders were conveying an inaccurate picture of God. Our emphasis was on checking the right boxes. The good kids were the ones who checked the most boxes. Quiet time, tick. Christian service, tick. Soul winning, tick. And I have a slight problem with the, that particular term for evangelism. We, we are not the ones who win souls. We are the agents through whom the Holy Spirit works. The bad kids, the ones who didn't check any boxes, well, you know how they'll turn out. But that isn't really how it worked out. Some of the bad kids, bad kids, did in fact have real faith in Jesus. They were just questioning what they were, what we were doing. Or perhaps they had attention deficit disorder. Some of the good kids wound up straying far off the path. But one particular poster that hung on our youth room wall leaves me with a painful memory. It reminds me of how wildly we missed the purpose of the spiritual disciplines. In the poster, a divine cartoon hand extends down from the clouds, pointing accusingly earthward. And cowering beneath the downstretched forefinger is the figure of a startled young man, his backpack askew as he looks upward in fear. The caption reads, have you done your quiet time today? That is not the hand of God. 
That is not how our advocate, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, works. That is how our that is our human effort to guilt trip some kids into doing the spiritual life. That is not likely to lead to union with Christ. In reality, the spiritual life should be as natural as breathing. We are inherently spiritual creatures with physical bodies. I think Africa understands this far better than the West. Many of us in the West have forgotten it, or we pretend the spiritual isn't quite as real. But to be non-spiritual is to be non-human. God invites us as physical and spiritual beings to enjoy continuous relationship with him. This is not because of anything we do, but because of what Jesus Christ did for us. It is our faith in Christ that brings us into relationship with God himself, and he gives us his Holy Spirit to guide our spirit. He also said this again in John 15. I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. Human beings are, are drawn toward relationship. We're social beings, even the shy and introverted among us. We still want a trusted friend or a brother or sister to be close to. We're created for this, but the relationship we most need is the one with our creator. The whole point of Jesus' ordeal on the cross is to bring us into this relationship. The spiritual disciplines, reading the scriptures, perhaps journaling about it, praying, they strengthen this spiritual life as we live in our bodies. The disciplines help us bring into focus that connection with God. It's not a particular thing we have to do each day or else we fail God. We get to do life with God. We abide in him. We can give our children and ourselves a system with which they can practice the spiritual disciplines. But until we grasp the relational aspect of this, it's like swimming upstream near the mouth of the Volta as it empties into the Gulf of Guinea. It's just a matter of time before we lose the struggle. We don't serve a God who points an ominous, accusing finger at us. He doesn't intimidate us into a particular behavior that will please him. We serve the God who runs to meet us, overjoyed to see us, he loves the good kids who check the boxes and the bad kids who can't be bothered. He loves those of us like me who have zealously been both of those kids. That's another long story. You see, when it comes right down to it, we're all bad kids. There's only one human being who is truly good, Jesus. Jesus loved us to the point of dying on the cross for us. The least we can do is to love each other as a substantive way of expressing our love for him. What does God want? He wants us. Ultimately, it doesn't matter where we're from. It matters where we're going to abide with him forever. When we understand that, we learn to abide in him now. Our service to him and to each other becomes a joy not only do we learn who we are, we learn whose we are. And that makes all the difference. 
I said earlier that Jesus was focused on others, even as he faced the, the greatest ordeal anyone has ever faced. Did you ever stop to think that he was focusing on you personally? Because he prayed for you that night. He did. The one who died for us and lives again, having conquered death, prayed for us. That night in the upper room, this is what Jesus prayed. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Jesus prayed for us to be one. That is my prayer too. That is from John 17, verses 20 through 24. So thank you very much for your time. That's what I have now. And I believe we will move on to some questions. Yes, um, thank you so, so much, Tim. I think um, it will be very convenient for us to say that um, Tim is an international citizen from Europe <laughs> to the United States and also Africa. So thank you so, so much for this profound teaching. And um, before we move on to the question and answer, which my colleague, um, Yemi, is going to take, I just want to say um, these few things that actually uh, struck my mind when um, Tim was teaching. And the first thing is um, we don't have to be known for us to have um, a value. That's because um, God Almighty created us in his own image. And one of the last things which he said was um, no matter who we are, the most important thing that actually makes the difference is actually whose we are. And that whose we are is because God himself is the one who created us and made us in his own image. So I want to believe all of us, we've gotten one thing or um, another and we have some questions. So I'll just hand over that segment to my colleague, Yemi. Over to you, Yemi. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, please, if we have questions, we can raise up our hands by clicking the raise hand um, icon, or we can drop our questions in the questions and answer box. Uh, but pending the time, we'll, okay, we have two hands right now. Um, Lydia Doe, you can go ahead to speak now. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Thank you very much, Tim. I've been a big fan, um, Lydia from Ghana. And uh, it, it's really exciting to hear from you and thank you for the humble teachings. Um, I, I, it, this question um, about not, not having to be known, I've been thinking there have been some kind of excessive, um, I don't know whether I should use the word excessive, but it's becoming a practice of a lot of uh, pastors, speakers with big, big billboards, particularly I've seen them in Africa, West Africa. Um, I wonder about the balance between self-promotion and promotion and activity that maybe it's uh, within the Christendom. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I, I think about these things too. In fact, I have a friend whose face has appeared on a billboard in, in Chicago 
And, and I have to be honest, I was a little bit uncomfortable with seeing his face there, even though he has a very large church. I want to be very careful. I, I have an uncomfortable feeling about that. Mm. Um, but I also know that the Lord uses people to bring people into his church. And I do remember uh, the words of Paul in his writings when he said, some preach Christ out of envy and uh, vainglory and others uh, out of a pure heart. I, whatever happens, I will rejoice that Christ is preached. Mm. So I try to take that personal approach. Um, if I'm close to somebody, though, it, it's pride is such a sneaky, uh, sneaky sin. And I'm speaking for myself personally. We're not aware that we are becoming proud until a friend taps us on the shoulder and tells us. Um, I think uh, I think we need to hold each other accountable on that. So my my personal my personal take on that is I don't want to really be t attacking another ministry that the Lord might be using, but I have to be honest about being uncomfortable with self promotion. I I would rather perhaps have uh, a ministry being upheld or or perhaps a topic that might be of interest to pull people in to to watch the service or to attend the service or whatever does that make sense yes it does it's just that sometimes i have felt a bit uncomfortable um and i don't know whether it was just me or <laughs> yeah this is very helpful thank you okay all right thank you lydia um, Isaac, you can go ahead. Yes, yes. Yeah, thank you very much. I am very happy to join, uh, you know, this talk. I mean, it's my first time to join a live session of Our Daily Bread, but I've been uh, reading since 2010 uh, the physical version of the Daily Bread and now the online version in terms of the app. And I am very, extremely grateful. It has helped me to grow spiritually in a very big way. And it's good to say that I am actually a senator in Kenya. I'm born again. So it's good to say that. Now, my question I want to ask is that um, um, now, at what point does one tell whether he's being punished for wrongdoing? Or is it the seasoning that the Lord is doing to improve you, especially during hard times or tribulations? So in the hand of God, at what point do you say, for example, you know, Joseph, you know, he's there, he's, mm -hmm. he's being, mm -hmm. he's being, uh, I mean, um, he's being uh, taken from his father and sold as a slave, he's accused of rape, you know, at what point, how do you differentiate between those, you know, those, that process of seasoning you buzzes when actually you are receiving punishment for doing wrong, because of course God is our father, and he must also make us, keep us to be upright. Thank you. Uh, it's, that's a great question. I, I have asked myself that question. Um, but when I look back at my life, I think I've been uh, able to distinguish, in retrospect, looking back, oh, that was God's punishment. And, and, and I knew why, because the Holy Spirit pointed out direct sin for me for certain things. And other times, um, like in the case of Joseph... He's looking to the skies, I'm sure, saying, why, God, is this happening to me? Um, that's, uh, that's very tough. And we see these stories all through the Bible. I mean, the whole book of Job is about that kind of thing. The Joseph story is the classic example of it. Um, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. I think you understand. I think the Holy Spirit makes it clear to us um, this is uh, this is not this is an unjust suffering that you are going through. Uh, but perhaps uh, you need you need friends alongside you to uh, to help you understand that too. We need the right kinds of friends. That's that's a tough question, but I think for me personally, I know I know when I am sinning. I really know it. The Holy Spirit has already been convicting me of it, and so then when I'm in the situation. I think, okay, that's God's punishment. I mean, Hebrews 12, 5 through 7, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. 
and scourges every son whom he receives. And if we're not chastened, then we're not sons. So we can even welcome punishment. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Isaac, for that. Um, I have someone here. Nosiku Muyinda. You can go ahead to speak now. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, um, Tim, and thank you for the team in Ghana for the very, very inspirational and motivational talk. I think... Um, you always learn something new every time you hear the word of God, and today isn't an exception. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, my question is, um, much as we know that we are God's children, much as um, we know that we belong to God, we have quite a number of people that don't know their, they don't know their ancestry. Um, some may know their mothers, but they don't know their fathers. We have a lot of children that are growing up without knowing who their fathers are, especially with the fathers. Now, my question is, how did um, connecting with your family, Tim, how did that help you um, sort of complete the picture? What was the experience afterwards compared to the way it was before? Did it, um, did it make a big difference or is it just the same thing? Because sometimes the fathers are known, but maybe the mothers would decide to keep the children away from their fathers for whatever reason. So just um, your view on that, how important was it for you to connect with your, your family, your complete family? Thank you. Well, it's been, it's been an amazing experience and it continues to be. And I understand that I'll be processing this for the rest of my life. Um, all of my parents are gone, my, my birth parents and my adoptive parents. So I would not meet my birth father, I don't believe ever. Uh, the story about my birth mother, who's American, is, uh, is sweet and sad. I have met her two surviving daughters, um, and they are thrilled to know about me. Uh, it, this, for me, it's a very long story, and I can't condense. It's a very complicated story. Um, but my eldest uh, American sister told me Mom would have loved you and would have been proud of you. And that was nice to hear. And uh, what she went through, I know, was very hard back in 1960. So um, it isn't, uh, for me, it's not getting closure. It's new discovery. And so I'll never get to meet my parents, although I think I'll get to meet my mother in heaven. I do think so. I have reason to believe that. Um, I, I, don't have, I don't have anything like closure, but the new discoveries and the new relationships that are being built and the way that people on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean have opened their arms and welcomed me uh, has been fantastic. I can't describe it. And uh, my adoptive family is very happy for me as well. So my situation turned out pretty well there. I know of a lot of other adoption stories um, that uh, did not turn out well when, when there was a reunion. So it's, it's tough to talk about. And uh, that's, I think that's probably why Psalm 68, 5 and 6 are, are most important to me. The, the only father who never lets us down is our heavenly father. Um, so and it's interesting to me, and as, as I study adoption, and adoption is such a key picture of what God does for us. He adopts us. Um, what I've learned in studying adoption is that most birth fathers, the vast majority, don't want to be found by their children. A few do, but most don't. That's very sad to me. Very sad. So... I can tell you that the family of my birth father is thrilled to have found me. So they, they love their American cousin, their American brother. So I, I could talk about that all day. It's, it's, a long, it's a long, long story. And I am writing a book, but I don't think it will be done for several years. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, 
I know we have other questions too that were written in ahead of time. I don't know if we will have time to get to those, uh, Yemi. Uh, yes, let me just read uh, like two out of them. Then we can now summarize uh, the rest. Probably we'll put them together and send them to you as an email to help us uh, give responses to it. So please, if you still have more questions, you can drop them in the question and answer box. We'll collect everything together and send them to team to help us provide response to them. Uh, but in the interim, let me just quickly take these two questions. Someone here is asking that why does God allow bad things to happen to good people or rather to fervent believers of Christ? Yeah, that is one of the biggest questions we we can ever we can ever ask. Um, I think the last thing I want to do is give a, a, a pontifical response that's theory and logic. Um, but we do have to remember that God doesn't uh, God doesn't do these things to us. He gave He created people. He created human beings with free will and he gave us a choice and our choice back in the garden was to rebel against him and that we all know that is how evil came into the world now why does god permit bad things to happen to the good people now, if you read psalm 73 that's one of the classic psalms on that where asaph says why do the wicked prosper and it seems like some people live to a ripe old age and never ever are brought to justice but but uh, we're just looking at this window of time here and uh, we also have to remember that the the best person ever the only truly good person suffered tremendously uh, he wasn't spared from the suffering so i do note that Christ steps into our suffering with us. So why do bad things happen to us? I haven't suffered like a lot of people have. Uh, when you're trying to follow Christ, you're wondering what is going on. And we talked about the Joseph story earlier. God's story is a much bigger picture. It leaves the frame from start to end that we don't see. We only see what is right in front of us. His story is the infinite one, the eternal one. And uh, we don't see the end. We can say, I mean, uh, Festus spoke about Romans 8.28. It's such a cliche, but it's very true that God works things together for good to those who love him. All things are going to work together. And that, that's an inclusive word. So you look at the disciples, um, 10 of the 11 of them who were left after Judas were killed for their faith. And only John survived to a ripe old age. So those are bad things happening right from the start. Paul himself was eventually executed for his faith. Um, those, those aren't the endings I would write, but it's the story God is writing. And... Uh, it's, it's just something where when we come to the end of ourselves, we fall back on God and we find he's everything we need. So we, we do have a booklet of why does God, why do, why do good things happen to bad people? Um, a discovery series booklet. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's a topic we could talk about all morning, I think. We really could. Um, thank you for that. So uh, we apologize. We may not be able to take more questions now. But like I said earlier, we'll put everything together and send them over to team to help us provide responses to them. Uh, yes, so I will, I will point to, uh, to, to respond directly as soon as I am able. So. Okay, thank you for that. And uh, you can look out for the recording of this webinar on our website very soon and on our YouTube channel. Our YouTube channel is uh, our Daily Bread Africa. So please do subscribe to our channel and click on the notification button 
to receive notification of new videos whenever we have videos uploaded to the channel. Thank you very much. I'm handing over to the moderator, Modupe, to take over now. much uh, Yemi and thank you so much team for providing answers to some of the questions. I'll just move on now to also call in my colleague from South Africa, John, to give the vote of thanks and um, closing prayer. Thank you so much everyone. Sorry, before John uh, comes up please, I'd like to say that we will look in our um, database and see if we have the electronic version of that book that Tim talked about. Why would God, a good God, allow suffering? And if we have it, we will send it across to all the participants on this call. We'll send the electronic version for you, uh, uh, for free, for your free download. We'll send the link to you. But we'll have to confirm first from our database to see if we have it. Thank you very much. John, over to you. Thank you. I trust you can hear me. Yes, we can hear you. Praise God. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for Tim's message today. Open our eyes that we may see you in everything and in every situation. When seemingly bad things happen, may we know that you are there for us that you will never leave or forsake us. Lord, you are the almighty, all-knowing God who has called us to be your beloved children. In that truth, we celebrate, we rejoice, we worship you. Thank you for Tim, whose story and message has drawn us closer to you, Lord. Lord, you are Abba Father. You know us through and through. You are the loving, good shepherd who knows all and who cares fully. May today's encouraging message remain in our hearts and may our joy touch those in our circle. Lord, we ask this in your precious name. Amen. And to you, Tim, Amen. thank you so much, Tim, for sharing. Um, you've shared more of your story than I've heard before and I really appreciate it. It encourages my heart. And as we consider the adoption of you into a family, we realize that we have been adopted into Father God's family, that we are heirs and co-heirs with the Lord Jesus, and that is super special. So Tim, thank you very, very much. God bless you. Thanks, John. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for joining us today. We wish you a very good evening or afternoon or even morning wherever you are listening to us from thank you so much and bye thank for you. now see you next time bye 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 bye, bye, -bye.